1: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: To the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect
3: is not about that scoreboard out there.
0: This is a chance a when you a can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are
3: all on the same team. Know your role you and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals.
2: We've gone over time and time again.
1: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no We've doubt
2: tonight.
3: Great moments are born. And great opportunity.
1: My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Valerie Condus-Field. Valerie was the head coach of the UCLA gymnastics team from 1991 to 2019 leading the team to seven national and 18 Pac-12 championships. She was voted NCAA Coach of the Year four times by her peers, and in 2016 was voted the Coach of the Century by the Pac-12 Conference. Her TED Talk, titled Why Winning Doesn't Always Equal Success, has been viewed over three million times, and she recently released a best-selling book called Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. Valerie is a passionate, warm, and inspiring person, and in this discussion, she shares her hard-won wisdom on topics ranging from the beauty of imperfection to beating cancer with a mindset focused on gratitude. She embraces her vulnerability and uses it to reflect on her career as a coach, where in her words... She wishes that all her athletes could have been led by the coach she was in the last 10 years of her career. There are many moments of this heartfelt interview that resonated with me, not the least of which was her views on the perils of social media and her warning that the world doesn't need another Kim Kardashian. The world needs you to be as uniquely brilliant as you can be. Other highlights were when she discovered her coaching purpose, which is to help create people who are champions in life and can go out and make the world a better place, was when the string of championship success started. And how her sport of gymnastics is based on perfection, but it doesn't really exist. And as a coach, you are able to get much more sustained success when you model vulnerability and humility and listen. And that allowing yourself to be imperfect is one of your greatest strengths as a coach. And when you own your imperfections in front of your team, It builds your credibility. This was a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as
3: Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Valerie Condos Field. Good afternoon, or rather, good evening for me, and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Paul,
0: thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting.
1: Well, you might be excited, but Jim and I are very excited to talk to you about all things gymnastics and your amazing career at UCLA. But before we get into any of that, can I ask you a really tough question to begin. Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today?
0: (laughs) It's so funny you asked me that. I grew up in California and I just retired. And my husband said, okay, pick a place because we're moving out of California. And so we recently moved to Northwest Arkansas. Well, I'm like just people in the United States, we don't have a lot of geography down in our heads, but people on the coasts, we don't know anything about middle America or where all the states line up. I shouldn't say we, I don't. And so I was telling everybody I'm moving to the Midwest. And finally my husband says, actually you're moving to the South. It's like, oh, okay. I said, well, at least least I'll have a coast. And he's like, it's not on the coast. It's not on the ocean. I'm like, okay, I have no idea where I'm living. So you asked me, where am I right now? I can answer this. I am in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It is in the South in the middle of the United States.
1: Valerie, that is the best answer we've ever had to that question. Thank you very much for that.
0: Valerie, I'm very
1: excited to talk to you because you've had this amazing journey as a coach and we're going to get into your TED Talk later on, which has been hugely successful all around the world and was actually how we came to meet you. But maybe I could just start by going through some of the names of the great coaches that you've had firsthand experience with. I can see there's Jim Stevenson, Jerry Tomlinson, Sue Enquist, of course, and, and of course the legendary John Wooden. So I wanted to start by asking you, what is it you think these great coaches do differently that sets them apart?
0: Okay. Another great question, Paul, because I'm actually teaching a graduate course at UCLA in transformative coaching and leadership. And every week for 10 weeks, we're studying a different successful coach. So, we studied Coach Wooden yesterday, Bill Jackson next week, Bobby Knight, Pat Summit, Sue Enquist, whom you mentioned. And the things that set the coaches apart, I, as you mentioned, I was very, very fortunate to have a close relationship, actually mentorship with the great John Wooden. And let me start with the commonalities that I've noticed. Commonalities are a passion for continuing for a growth mindset. All of the coaches that we've studied in the the class that I'm teaching, all of the coaches who I had the great fortune of being mentored by, they all had a growth mindset. They all were readers, not just of athletics books or leadership books, but all types of books. They all have, are meticulous with understanding what a healthy culture and foundation looks like under their leadership. They have pure, clear understanding of what the non-negotiables are within their program. And it's not, I found that it's not the why that is different. They all coach for the same reason, but it's how they get there that is different. So Bobby Knight, who yelled and screamed and swore, and he's famous for throwing the chair across the basketball court, was, almost as successful as John Wooden, but their personalities and how they went about doing it are night and day. So personally, I gravitated toward people who enjoyed learning from all aspects of life and brought that into their coaching philosophy.
1: Before we get into your coaching philosophy, I'd like to ask if there was someone who ignited an interest in coaching in you because you were going down a different path in life. You were a ballet dancer and you retired at the ripe old age of 22. Right. All of a sudden you're this UCLA coach.
0: I never thought to coach. I never aspired to be a coach. I wanted to be a journalist. As you mentioned, I was a ballet dancer and I was, I got brought to UCLA to be their dance coach and choreographer when I was 22 years old. And I quit dancing and got my degree in history and was going to go be a a journalist. And I was called into the athletic director's office after I graduated. And she said, we're going to make a change with the head coaching position. And we would like for you to be the new head coach. I thought I laughed out loud immediately. She said I was catatonic for about a full minute. Then I laughed out loud. And reminded her, I don't know the first thing about gymnastics. I've never had a gymnastics lesson. I've never done a cartwheel. And it's UCLA. It's one of the most prominent programs in the country, let alone the world. What do I know? And she literally looked at me and said, I've observed how you've worked with the athletes because I was the assistant coach. And basically, I was a dance coach, choreographer. She said, I like how you are firm, but compassionate with them. And I have full faith that you will figure the rest out. And so, at that point, I was I was twenty nine. I had not met Coach Wooden. I had not studied Coach Wooden. And yet, looking back on my career and the, and the things that really helped me figure it out, how to be a, a good leader, was my work ethic. I love to work hard. I love figuring things out, and enthusiasm. I absolutely believe in infusing joy into everything you do. And joy is not happy, haha. Joy is like get in the dirt, hard work, feel great about yourself, leave it all in the gym that day, or be able to go home at night just emotionally, physically, mentally spent. That is joy. And when I looked at those two things, and then later on, Paul, when I did study Coach Wooden, And I did study his pyramid of success, enthusiasm and industriousness are the cornerstones of his pyramid, hard work and attitude. And that's what I had been bringing all along. That's how I started to figure out how to coach.
1: Well, it's great that the athletics director saw that in you, but success didn't come overnight because in 91, you become actually the head coach. You are promoted. Right. But- It takes a while for success to come because it's not till 1997 that the team wins the first NCAA championship, but then goes on to win in 2000, 2001, 2003, 2004, 2010, 2018. So there's a long run of success, but I'd like to go back to those first six years when you're a head coach. And I'd like to ask you, there was no championship then, but you must have been learning and gaining energy from the experience enough so that it fueled your later results.
0: Yes, I was gaining a lot of experience, honestly, of what not to do. I, I wish I could go back to my first few years of being the head coach and coach those athletes again, because I was just learning and flying by the seat of my pants to figure all this out. And they, they were like the guinea pigs. They bore the brunt of it. They were super talented because we were UCLA and we could recruit. But I didn't have a really strong, I didn't have a foundation at all. I mean, I grew up in the world of dance. I didn't know what a healthy athletic culture should look like. So my early years as a head coach, I did the only thing that I thought was prudent to do. And I studied, literally mimicked other head coaches. And so take yourself back to the 80s, where the majority of really successful coaches were dictatorial, tough-minded, tough-talking, my way of the highway, bullish, step down from being in military training and i figured well in my mind that's what a coach was and so i mimicked all i postured honestly as a head coach because i didn't know what else to do and it was about three years into my head coaching miserable career (laughs) that the team asked me for a team meeting and i got very excited because i love team meetings and for two solid hours, they gave me examples of how my, especially my sarcasm and my my snarky wit wasn't funny. I thought it was funny. They didn't think it was funny. In fact, they said it was hurtful and demeaning. And I was just gutted because my intention in life has never been to hurt another human being. And so in that instance, I knew I had a crossroads and I could continue to mimic and coach how I had, I'm the leader. You don't like it. Go find another team to be on, or I could change. I chose to change, but I didn't really know how I was going to change or what I should change to. This is the beautiful part of the story. I was thinking about resigning and going and doing something that I knew that I would be successful at. Honestly, I remember thinking somebody else should have this job that actually knows what they're doing with athletics And I was walking through the student's door and I happened upon, it's actually that book, Coach Wooden's book on leadership. And it magically opened up to his definition of success. And I read, Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result in knowing you have done your best. And I thought this was absurd because in athletics, success is winning. Coaches are hired to win, we're not hired to be mentors, teach life lessons be their best friends, we're hired to win. So I thought that Coach Wooden's definition was kind of like a nice little Hallmark card and there must be more to his definition later. And I kept thumbing through the chapter. No, that was as as complicated as it gets. Success is peace of mind and knowing that you have done your best. I must've read that thing over and over and over 20, 30 times. Thankfully, because the word you got bigger and bolder and brighter every time I read it. Success is peace of mind and knowing you have done your best. I had been trying to be other people. I had been trying to mimic other head coaches. In that s- instance, I just recognized that whenever you try to be somebody else, you will always fall short of being great because you will never be as good at them being them as they are at being them. And the worst thing that happens is it prevents you from becoming a first-rate you. So all of you that are listening to this out there that scroll social media constantly and compare yourself to these beautiful lives supposedly everybody have has, stop it. Stop comparing yourself to them. A, that's a fallacy, what's out there. And B, you will never be as good as Kim Kardashian is, at being Kim Kardashian is, as she is. So the world doesn't need another Kim Kardashian. The world needs you to be as uniquely brilliant as you can be. So I went back to my office. I didn't resign. I thought about what I brought to the table. A lot of what I learned growing up in the world of ballet translated to artistic gymnastics. So I knew that there was a part of it that I could actually coach. And then the biggest part of what I took time to figure out was my why. Thank you, Simon Sinek, for asking us all to figure out our why. But I didn't know Simon Sinek back then. But I remember thinking, why is sport important in life? And why would I think that I could actually be a coach? And it was like so clear to me because I did not grow up in this world of winning. I didn't grow up with bragging rights you know, on stage going, ha ha, we beat you. There's none of that in the theater. So I didn't have that DNA in me, although I'm very competitive. I think most humans are, but I didn't have this win at all cost mentality. So why were we going to do athletics? It obviously athletics is a masterclass in teaching really, really, really tough life lessons that one does not learn in the classroom. Okay, major aha moment. My job, my why, I am going to come in every day and figure out how to fortify these young women that are under my care into becoming champions in life that are going to go out in the world and make the world a better place. I am going to develop champions in life through sport. And as I said, because we were at UCLA and I could recruit talent. I knew that if I fortified these young, amazing humans into literally these superheroes through the sport of gymnastics, I knew that mentality and that competitiveness and that champion mentality would translate to the competition floor. And it did. And that's when we started, quote unquote, winning.
1: I love this idea of not all winning being success. It's the foundation of your of your TED talk it's been watched over 3 million times and we will put the link to it in these show notes so that more people can experience it and i can see clearly now how the genesis of that TED talk links to that moment when you discovered John Wooden and his definition of success but i'd like to ask you a slightly different question because is all winning success question mark and then when you give the speech you pause and i imagine there's a lot of people that jump in and say well yes all winning is success. I wanted to ask you how you respond to those people that insist that all winning is success.
0: That's the part of what I've learned and what I feel that why coaches and teachers, parents need to continue to have a growth mindset and continue to learn. We cannot ignore the statistics. We cannot ignore the research that has been done that has shown us that our youth is suffering from depression, anxiety, stress on levels that we've never seen before. Our suicide rates amongst our youth have skyrocketed. And so, when you think about why, it's because of the pressure that we put on them. It's not their fault, it's the pressure that we put on them, it's the pressure that parents put on them. I, there's a section in my TED Talk where I talk about. It's so funny, Paul. There's a part of my TED talk where I say, parents, ask yourself, what are you more interested in helping your child develop into a champion or winning? Because if you're only focused on them winning, then it's really about you and your ego and your bragging rights. And so in my TED talk, I say, I mean, you'll know very quickly if if you are interested in winning or developing a champion by the questions you ask in the car ride home, because the research has also proven that kids decide to quit their sport most of the time on the car ride home because they're in this sequestered little box with their parent that they can't get away from the bombardment of questions. Are you asking your child, did you win? How many points did you score? Did you get an A? Or are you asking questions about the experience? What did you learn today? How did you help a teammate out today? Did you figure out how to have fun at that thing that you really don't like to do, which is usually like conditioning? for athletes. Did you figure out how to have fun doing that? And at the end of my TED talk, I had a woman come up to me. She was adorable. And she was Asian. She said, okay, Miss as you can tell I am a typical tiger mom. What they say is a tiger mom. So when you were asking me, do I ask my child if he got an A or how many points? I was shaking my head. Yes, I'm so proud of myself until you gave me the alternative. And I realized Oh, I'm focusing on the wrong thing. I was so impressed with her humility and her vulnerability, and her sense of humor, and being able to laugh at herself to say, "I really learned something today." Thank you. So yes, it is. We need it. We all need to give ourselves a timeout and think about what does success really look like. Because winning is really fun, and in athletics. That's what you strive to do. That's what you got to figure out how to do. you got to figure out how to win because that's the fun part and that's the challenge. But it's how you go about winning that's the important part.
1: I'd like to ask you a little bit about that that how, actually, because I've got this amazing quote from you, Valerie, and I'd like to read it to you, actually, before I give the question. And it says, In a sport as subjective as gymnastics, it's important to have an honest internal voice that knows when you've done your best, even if your score says you didn't win. And conversely, knowing when you can push harder, even if your score says you are the champion, and that inner voice is known as integrity. It's vital in living a life to its fullest and enjoying the journey in every aspect of life. I just loved it. And I wanted to ask you a very open-ended question around how do you help athletes find a more honest internal voice?
0: By providing a safe space for open dialogue and conversation for explaining to them that when they come in to school, their glass is already filled with me, their their trust. Like you don't have to earn my trust as a freshman. You've already got it because I recruited you. Within that understanding, you're going to screw up and I'm going to screw up. But the important part is For us to be able to have the safe space to realize that, to be able to sincerely apologize and to figure out how to move forward, because I found it especially important working with gymnasts because our sport is based on perfection and perfection doesn't exist. And so when you talk about the concept of grace and being able to give someone else grace in that safe space to be able to screw up but not destroy the relationship you need to start by giving yourself grace by being able to model what that looks like to your student athletes and i feel like that's one of the biggest mistakes that especially young leaders make and i certainly did this when i took over as a head coach is they think that they are supposed to have all the answers and know everything and that's when your ego takes over and that's when you get in trouble Versus I now believe that the strongest leaders, most impactful leaders, are those who model behavior that they are hoping to instill in the student-athletes whom they lead. And that modeling of behavior includes the most important parts of showing your vulnerable side, your humble side, your empathetic side the biggest part of a safe space that I found to create with our athletes was when they started talking to literally shut up and listen. And that's a skill that we all need to continue to work on to develop because most of the time when someone else is talking, we're trying to figure out what our next statement is going to be and we're not listening. And this is really cool. When you spell out the word, listen, And you rearrange the letters. It spells silent. Isn't that cool? So I know it's really cool. (laughs) So in order. I
1: don't want to say anything now. You're talking about being silent. So I didn't want to say anything. Sorry, Valerie.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. No, it is. Cause I saw, I saw your eyes go, mm, I, know. It's like, I love it when I'm <laughs> speaking engagements and I've got hundreds of people out there. So I, I said, get this. And they go, Oh, like there's this big collective gasp, but I love it because you truly are not listening unless you practice silencing your mind. That is, I believe one of the greatest gifts that we can give someone and especially our youth, our children. You don't have to agree with what they're telling you. Just let them talk without you butting in and without without me butting in or without me correcting them or without me saying, no, you're seeing this the wrong way. Just give someone the the gift of listening. I I think I didn't even answer your question because I just went off on this tangent, I'm sorry.
1: Valerie, it was a great answer. Please don't apologize. It was wonderful. I think the whole idea of listen and silent being joined through an anagram is fantastic. So thank you for that. I want to talk about gifts, though. That was the last thing you mentioned. Because I saw an interview with you on Good Morning America with one of your athletes, Caitlin Ohashi. And what was really interesting was that she credited you with helping her find joy in the sport again. So you'd given her this gift. She'd lost it and you'd given it back to her. The routine that led to you being featured on Good Morning America, I looked at it hundreds of millions of times it has been viewed. It was a very big number. When did you learn about the power of joy as a coach?
0: Gosh, I, I believe I learned about the power of joy, bringing it into my coaching when I started realizing it was important to, to develop relationships with my athletes is when the joy started being infused. And I'm not saying relationship as we're best friends, as we go out to lunch and shopping, that's for their friends to do. I'm talking about the relationship of, I know them more than just as an athlete because I've taken the time and I'll use Caitlin Ohashi as an example. I have taken the time to get to know them, their interests, what their family life is like. What was it like before they came to UCLA? What hardships did they go through? And sharing some of mine as well. The way I did that was I made an intentional decision to only talk about gymnastics in the gym. So if we were in my office and I was asking them an open-ended question, how how are you doing today? 99.9% of the time, the student athlete would respond about how she did in the gym. And I would say, if you want to talk about gymnastics, that's fine. I'll talk about you. That's not what I asked you, but I asked you about you. How are you as a human? The more those relationships developed in that sense, the more trust between the athlete and me there was. So when there was friction, when there was a disagreement, we, there was still this foundation of a relationship and trust, which is the biggest part of relationship that's when I was able to help the athlete infuse joy into the process of learning. And I remember Caitlin saying to me, I don't like gymnastics anymore. I just hate gymnastics. And I was like, well, you don't have to love gymnastics, but do you love being with your teammates? Yeah. Do you love working out? Yeah. Do you love a challenge? Yeah. Okay, great. That's all gymnastics is. And she was bringing her previous history of gymnastics to what she was doing now in college. I said, Kate, just come in the gym and we're going to make it great. You're going to have fun. You're going to be training with your teammates. I'm going to give you a a challenge every day because she's got this competitive heart and it's going to be really fun. And guess what? You get your workout in because you'd be working out anyway. So this will be fun. That's when the joy started enfolding into our training, into the assignments that we would give the student athletes every day. We would... It's because gymnastics is not head to head competition, but all athletes have that competitive heart. So we would do something really competitive with them every single day, even if it was silly, like how many full turns can you make on balance being without wobbling? It didn't matter what it was. They just want to compete. And I'm going to switch a little bit here and I'm going to name drop in a really big way, Paul. I had a, a wonderful one on one conversation for about an hour with Kobe Bryant the majority of the talk, actually, he started by saying, he said, Miss Bell, I don't know whether to thank you or to be mad at you because my daughters have Caitlin Ohashi's floor like automatic replay in our house. And he says, we literally have watched it probably a thousand times. That switched to us discussing how important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. And Kobe, I mean, we were just so on the same track that Understanding that joy is not being happy. Joy is something internal that comes from you doing your absolute best at something. And he said to me, he says, you miss Val, joy for me was getting up every morning at 430 and putting in two extra workouts before the team ever showed up. He goes, I got so filled up with joy and pride that it really didn't even matter if we lost a game, our next game that nobody can take that away from you. He said, that's my pride in a job well done is what filled me with joy that I was able to bring to everything I did in life. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
1: recurring theme in your life, which is around gratitude. It comes also through in the positivity that you bring to this conversation, to the media interviews I see with you, but also your writing and the way you talk about life. Even in this discussion, we haven't touched on your battle with cancer, but I know that you reframed it to be, I've got cancer, well, is me, to, hey, I get to go to chemotherapy and beat this thing, which I thought was, was wonderful. But also you talked earlier about the intervention your athletes had when they gave you feedback. But again, you reframed it and you were grateful for it. And so there's this real theme and everything I've read on resilience. Gratitude is at the center of developing more resilient people. But what I wanted to ask you was probably just something as simple as what advice do you have for others on embracing the power of gratitude and bringing it into their own leadership style?
0: Well, thankfully we have the research that shows us, how the brain reacts to when we intentionally think thoughts of, of gratitude and the brain creates dopamine and it makes us feel like we are happy. As you mentioned, Paul, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was told if I chose to get chemotherapy for a year, they knew it would work. In that like second, I switched my thoughts from, I don't have to get chemotherapy. I don't have to get chemotherapy. I get to get chemotherapy because I actually live at a time that has the chemo. And that's where, as you referenced, I called it, I was so excited to get chemotherapy. I called it going to my chemo spa because a spa is someplace you got to get better. And every doctor I've had has said, we really wish we could quantify the power of gratitude in the mind because I sailed through chemo. I sailed through four surgeries. Obviously there were times where I didn't feel great, but I never lost the gratitude for the fact that I get to have this poison shot through my veins that's going to give me more days. This is so cool because I want more days to live. Switching then that one word have to to get to has changed every moment of my life since then. Especially this last year, I didn't have to be quarantined. I told myself constantly, I get to be quarantined because I actually couldn't afford to own a home. I don't have to get a vaccine shot. I get to, because I live in a country that has an opportunity to get the vaccine. And when you really live in consistent gratitude, you then shed all of the emotions, the emotions that weigh you down and weigh your relationships down, there's no space for them in your brain when you're living in gratitude. There's no space to hold a grudge against someone. There's no space to hold anger which does none of us any good. When you're living in gratitude, you, you know your brain cannot think of two opposing thoughts at the exact same time. You can ping pong from gratitude to pity party, gratitude, pity party, but you can't do it at the same time. So choose one. And that's the one thing that I wanted my, my student athletes to get in the time that they were with me is if they only learned one thing, it's to understand that life is about choice The choices that we make dictate the life we live. And every single choice that I make starts with my thoughts. Unless you have a mental disability, you are able to control and choose your thoughts. Your thoughts will then produce emotions. Your emotions will produce actions. Every single action is gonna have numerous repercussions that's going to determine the type of life you live. And the reason why I thought this was so important for my student athletes to grasp is because as soon as you take control of your mind and therefore your actions, you can no longer live as a victim in life. So when life hands you stuff that's really hard, adversity, you don't go into pity party mode. You take a deep breath and you go, okay, I got this. What's going to be my best next step? And then you live your life that way. And I find that it's just a far more enriched way to live than fueling the negative.
1: These are hard worn wisdoms because I understand growing up, there wasn't necessarily this positivity always around you It was something that you had to develop and build within yourself. And it's had a ripple effect as you've gone on and had a wonderful long career as a coach, as you say, you say, as you've recently retired from, but There has been some controversies along the way. I don't particularly want to go over them. I think there's been enough that you've said about them and others, but I would like to talk about a quote I saw from you in mid 2020 in relation to some of those controversies. And you said, and I'm going to read this quote to you again, because I think it's a ripper. You said, I wish all of my athletes could have been led by the coach. I was the last 10 years of my career. And I wanted to talk to you about the choice you made to continue putting yourself out there as a coach after you'd had this realization, knowing that you were imperfect in a sport that prizes perfection, you kept going. And I wanted to know, what has this taught you about persevering and evolving, even though you knew there was mistakes behind you?
0: Well, sadly, we live at a time where, gosh, cancel culture, right? I mean, people are dredging up, Things that you have said or done 20, 30 years ago. And what I want to say to all of those people are can we examine your life as well? If we're going to be examining all these other people or examining me, can we examine yours? Because if you've not, if you were like as wonderful yours were right now 30 years ago, wow, <laughs> good for you. I have enjoyed, as I said, the important part of being a coach is modeling the behavior of how you want the people under you to, to receive or to act, and I have enjoyed being able to put myself out there and say, oh my gosh, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. Um, Even even things like weighing our athletes, putting them on a scale once a week. Oh my gosh, I would never in a million years do that now. But that's what we thought we were supposed to be doing. And so I feel like not only do I wish the student athletes had me when. The last 10 years of my career, I wish I could go back to the person that I am right now since I've retired, since I started teaching this class, studying all these other coaches, since I've done, continued to do work on myself this since I've retired, I'd love to go back and start all over again. But that's not what life is. And so as one of my, my Greek predecessors said, Socrates said, The unexamined life is not worth living. So I think that my whole life, I have not had a problem self-examining. I don't get down on myself. I don't beat myself up when I realize I've done something really crappy. I'm with my student athletes. I have had no issue apologizing. In fact, I think it's a strength. I've always looked forward to the conversations where I can look them in the eye and say, I sincerely apologize for how what I did or what I said made you feel, that was never my intention to hurt you and you have my sincere apology. And I think a big part of that is then talking through it with them and saying, do you accept my apology? And when they say yes, then I go, okay, then as far as I'm concerned, I'm never bringing this up again. Like we do not need to go over why whatever you did that got me so upset to tell you what I said. I will, we don't ever need to revisit that again because I accept your apology too. So how cool is that? Let's move forward. And I think that's a big, big part of what we're missing right now. And I really do hope that especially the celebrities that are speaking out against cancel culture, I feel like I really wish that people will stop and think about, think before they, put something out there on social media, because there's not a human being that's walking on the face of the earth that's perfect. I don't want to start having to pretend like I was or that I am. I never will be. I can say that this is like taking your question to a little bit different entity. I've never had children, but... My friends who have multiple children, they're always exasperated by that one child that seems to be the quote unquote black sheep or something like that. And they say, we we parented them all the same. Why? Well, it's because we're all wired differently. And I think that that is the hardest part of being a coach is you've got student athletes that are coming to you, especially in college. They're 18 years old. They've already lived 18 years and have all this history that they bring to the table, including all of the triggers that you as a coach don't know about. And that's the really tricky part of being a coach is being able to figure out what the foundation of this team culture is going to look like and then how you're going to hold the student athletes accountable that veer off, veer away from the team rules and the team handbook without being demeaning without making it personal. That's the key in holding people accountable is making sure that you're not crossing the line to making it personal. And what athletes need to understand is the athletes that I had, that I had a really great relationship with, that doesn't mean we didn't argue. It doesn't mean that they didn't like me at times. Caitlin Ahashi and I argued a lot, but they're the ones that sought me out for that relationship. They're the ones that kept stopping by my office. They're the ones that said, hey, myself, we go to coffee. It's not like I picked and choose. I don't think coaches pick and choose favorites. I think that's a total fallacy because coaches are hired to win. (laughs) They don't like, I didn't care if somebody was not my favorite person. They're going to go compete. They're going to help us win. But I have had a lot of student athletes say to me after they graduated, I wish I would have had a relationship with you like, say, Caitlin Ahashi did. And I, that just daggered to my heart because that reminds me, you know what, I should have done something more to have a relationship with them. I know coaches, I know that you're listening and saying, we don't have enough time for that. I get it. However, what I have learned is when I took some of that time, like if you look at coach, you mentioned Sue Enquist earlier. Sue Enquist, one of the greatest softball coaches in the world she talks about time as currency. When I look at my career, when I took some of my currency, my precious currency, those precious minutes that the gymnast could be doing extra conditioning or extra routines, when I took some of that currency to be able to get to know her as a human being, her family, her interests, her hobbies, what she doesn't like about me, where she thinks I'm going wrong, When I would take that time with that currency, as you well know, the compound effect was far greater than had I used that currency just to have them do an extra conditioning set. I had a student athlete say to me one time, she was a freshman, she says to me right in the middle of balance beam workout, she goes, okay, I just have to tell you, you're really chapping my ass. I didn't know what that meant. And I thought it was like a compliment because I thought it was like ChapStick. But like chaps didn't make sure clear lips feel better. So I was chapping her ass. I didn't get it. I looked at her teammate, and her teammate goes, No, Miss Val, that is not a compliment. I was like, oh, okay. So I asked the girl who said that, I said, Hey, could you stop by my office this afternoon so we could talk about what this looks like, what this means, me chapping your ass? And she did, and it started off a pretty contentious conversation. But thankfully, I listened. And thankfully I said to her, my intention is not to chap your ass. I promise. And if you think that you're going to do better with less coaching from me, all right, let's try that. I gotcha. I'm hearing you. No problem. Let's hopefully see how that goes.
1: We've never met until this interview and I'm a little hesitant to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think I gonna need to give you permission to be imperfect because that's life. That's coaching. And it's the, I'm going to steal a line from my dad. If he was here right now, he'd say, you know, well, he's still here. <laughs> if he was with me right now, he'd say, you know, it's the impurities in water that give it flavor. So this imperfection, I think, is a strength from afar. This whole idea of embracing what's not perfect and carrying on regardless, that's a pretty strong message. And that's a message that you pushed out over three million times on a Ted talk. And I'm sitting here in Prague in the Czech Republic and my daughters have watched it and they'll pass it on from there too. So I just wanted to land that idea that imperfections. Okay.
0: I really do feel that it's like you said, it's it's part of our strength to be able to be vulnerable. Like, so I, t- I talked to you about this course that I'm teaching, transformative coaching leadership The book that we're studying along with every coach every week is Renee Brown's book, Dare to Lead. And she talks about the power of vulnerability and vulnerability being the first step to courage. I just, I embrace so much my, I don't believe in the word failure, but for right now, I can't think of a better word, but my failures in life, because it's only through the really tough times that we learn and can choose to grow. You don't learn a darn thing when life is going well. You really don't. Like There are years that coaching that we just sailed through and won the national championship. I remember telling myself, okay, really appreciate this time because this isn't life. We have never been promised that life would be easy. This concept of perfection also stems from the fact that I have a very strong faith and so I would never, ever expect myself to be on the level of God. Ever. I am so thankful that I am forgiven for all of the crappy stuff that I do every day. Some of it I don't even know I'm doing, but that God forgives me, gives me that grace. Therefore, I'm going to give it to myself and I'm going to give it to other people as well. When I look at the relationships that I have that are really close, They're the ones that we've gone through adversity with. They're the ones that we've had those hard conversations with. Those relationships are so much stronger than people whom I just had a fluff relationship with and never gotten into the weeds. The concept of allowing yourself to be imperfect, I feel as a coach, is one of your greatest strengths. Because as soon as you make a mistake... And huddle your team up and own up to it and sincerely apologize and then discuss how we're going to move forward. I can guarantee you, your credibility with your athletes just soared through the roof.
1: Valerie, one last question, if I could. I think we're close to the answer already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You've written a great book, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. You've talked about imperfection. We've also talked about John Wooden and how his quotes really became the cornerstone of your coaching approach in the future. If someone stumbles along your book, puts that together with your Ted talk and your fabulous record that you've left behind, how do you hope they summarize that as the legacy that you've left as a coach?
0: Oh, wow. I've never been asked that question, Paul. First of all, my book is a really easy read and it's basically tells how a dancer, choreographer, myself, became one of the winningest coaches in the world of athletics. And what I would hope that people would glean from my experience, my book, is that life is really fun. Life is a big, grand adventure. And when you look at life as an adventure, you realize that there are gonna be boulders thrown in your way constantly. And the fun part about life is to figure out how to get around over or through those boulders that life hands you. That is how I literally just crafted, or as I say, choreographed my life was one choice at a time and trying to figure it out. And that combined with, as you keep mentioning my TED talk, the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, is all winning success? When you look at when someone life, life comes to an end, nobody's looking at how many championship rings they have. They're looking at the legacy that they left. When we talk about Coach Wooden, yeah, it's really fun. He won 10 championships in 12 years. But that's not why people are in such awe and respect and revere John Wooden. It's because of the philosophies and what he built with his pyramid of success. It's about all of the other discussions that he's had in his main books. And Paul, you said earlier, it took me seven years to win our first championship. Guess what? It took Coach Wooden 15. In today's culture, where we're one, I mean, literally you're, you get two to three years to prove yourselves as a coach. If not, you're Like we would never have Coach Wooden today if it took him 15 years to win a championship. So I would hope that from my legacy, I hope my legacy is... Don't ever put yourself in a box. Don't, I'm not even gonna say think outside the box because there should not be a box. I don't believe in labels because I think that that stifles us from our growth. And whatever life presents you, look at it as a gift and then figure out how to be grateful for this challenge and then how to, to move past the challenge or accept the challenge. I promise you, if you look at life that way, you're going to have a really fun life.
1: Gratitude, perseverance, challenge, and fun. That's a pretty good legacy. So Valerie, thank you so much for the time you've spent with us today. It's been a really touching conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely, and I look forward to sharing it with a much broader audience.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, all of you who are listening. Let's all just pinky swear promise that we're going to go out in the world and make it a better day a better world, one day at a time. Pinky promise.
3: <laughs> the Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Valerie Condesfield. field Valerie's infectious laugh there at the end of the interview was her reaction to our pinky swear promises. As Paul summarized, this was a very touching interview, and the key highlights of our time with Valerie for me were... Her view that great coaches have a growth mindset and have a meticulous understanding of what a healthy culture looks like under their leadership. How she believes in infusing joy in everything you do. And she defines joy as reaching a point of being emotionally and physically spent in doing something that you have a passion for. Her view that the tricky part of being a coach is figuring out what the team culture is going to be and then holding people accountable to it in a way that is fair and not demeaning. And she says you do this by investing your time in getting to know athletes beyond their functional role in the team and wanting to leave a legacy of helping people realize that whatever life presents you is a gift and your challenge is to figure out how to be grateful for it. I hope you enjoyed this as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, we'll be speaking to Australian rules football four-time winning Premiership coach David Parkin.
1: What I think we fail as coaches we get so absorbed in the coaching role teaching coaching helping players to get better so that they can perform well and the teams that we coach could win and that's an obvious role and recognition of all coaches in all sports but I think what we've failed to do in this country, and I don't know that it's all that much better now, what we've failed to do is to talk about the complete player. The player as a person beyond their ability to perform whatever they perform as the athlete or the player that they are. And we've struggled with that.
3: And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach, you know has a unique story to share we would love to hear from you you can contact us using the details in the show notes